0: Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today.
1: Mark 10, verse 32. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn, condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Then James and John, the son of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we wish. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask, are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, we are able. So Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism that I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand, and on my left, is not mine to give, but it is for those... Um, whom uh, it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly <laughs> displeased with James and John. But Jesus said to them, uh, or called them to himself, and said to them, You know that uh, those who are uh, considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise an authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant and whoever of you desires to be first shall be the slaves of all For even the Son of man did not come to be served But to serve and to give his life a ransom for many
0: The famed Emperor Julius Caesar was born about a century before Jesus He's famous still today. I mean, Shakespeare helped his cause for sure with a play that's attributed to him and his demise. But he's known for other things, including his statement that, I came and I saw and I conquered. And he really did do just that by coming and ruling over much of the known earth. It was impressive what he did and accomplished. But he almost missed out on his glorious fate the fact that he is historically still known and talked about some 2,000 years later, he almost missed out. Because according to one ancient historian who tells the story of how he was taken by a band of pirates and held for ransom, the historian tells the story that when being held for ransom, this young, pompous, arrogant, not yet famous, only 25-year-old version of the great Julius Caesar He had all the arrogance of the great emperor long before he had officially taken that position. But when they stated what his ransom would be, they stated and and released the information demanding 20 talents of silver. And young Julius was offended, appalled. And he told them, you don't know who you're dealing with. And he demanded that they'd ask for 50 talents instead. (laughs) Some suggest it's the equivalent of about $70 million is what he had set his own ransom price to be, which is just a classic story. The historian also continues saying that he began to be demeaning to his captors, mocking them and acting as if he was in charge and, and even jokingly telling them, just wait until my people come, pay that tribute, pay off my ransom because then I'll come back and I'm going to kill all of you and they'd laugh and... Well, in the end, he was paid off. His his ransom price that was set was paid for, and as soon as he returned back to his homeland, he pulled together a band, a fleet of individuals, to go and pursue these these people, these pirates who had held him captive. And he did. He made good of his word and watched as each one of them were crucified. It's a crazy story. The ransom of Julius Caesar. If you fast forward about eleven hundred years. You find another story in history about a crazy ransom. In fact, it's the king's ransom. You might remember this story. It's about King Richard the Lionheart, who Peter Pan and his fable have basically made famous. But King Richard, he was this young guy that historians tell us, was almost as arrogant as Julius Caesar. Very full of himself and often rubbing other people the wrong way. An incredibly driven individual, which meant that he led... Uh, his people out on conquest almost the entirety of his reign as their king. Historians also tell us he was capable of extreme cruelty. But one time that fearless king, he was coming back from being out on crusade, in fact coming back from the Holy Land itself, and a massive storm front pushed him and his ship up against the shoreline of his enemy's territory. Thinking quick on his feet, he jumped into a disguise trying to downplay his actual identity. But it wasn't hidden from, for long from his enemies, the, the territory that he landed in. There was no hiding the fact that this was the great King Richard the Lionheart. And so very quickly he was arrested and held for ransom. For over a year he'd be traded off from one enemy to the next until finally one of his enemies, required that a sum total of 150,000 silver marks would be paid in order for him to be ransomed. People have tried to suggest and, and take their best guess at what that would be in a modern equivalent. It was it was roughly three times the annual income of the English crown. It was a massive, of, massive amount of money. The equivalent, according to businessinsider.com, of $3.3 billion was the price of his ransom. His loyal mother uh, took the cause on herself to rescue her boy, and the king's ransom would finally be paid. That moment in time then immortalized the creation of an idiom, and the idiom is the king's ransom. It's something we still use today in modern English, and I realize if, if English is someone's second language, then it's really hard to pick up on idioms because you're hearing them as literal. But for us, if, if English was our first language and we grew up in the current cultural moment that we're in, we're, 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 we understand these things. Uh, we pick up on what they mean. If you, if English was your second language and you heard someone else say that they're toast, if they made that statement, I'm toast, you'd be totally confused. If they said that their parents kicked the bucket, you'd just look at them kind of cross-eyed. I mean, if they said, that it's raining cats and dogs outside or that they need to let the cat out of the bag, they'd assume that none of us like animals very much, and specifically cats. We understand, though, idioms. They carry with them not just a literal but a figurative meaning. And and the idiom of the king's ransom is something that's existed in cultures and society as early, linguists say, as just a century after that moment with the great, brave king and his king's ransom. And the king's ransom was not being used all throughout the last 900 years. It's not been used to describe the ransom cost to get a king. No, but it's describing a ransom fee that only a king could afford. That's what it means. It costs the king's ransom. I would never say something like this, but if I did, like say that my wife's shoe collection would only be able to be taken by a king's ransom, you'd understand that I'm not saying that it would ransom a king. You're saying that only a king's wealth could acquire the kind of shoe collection that my wife has. Now, again, I would never say something like that because I'd be in big trouble if I did, but our text today introduces this idea of the king's ransom. Roger just read it to us. It's, It's this climactic moment in Mark's gospel where it says the king's ransom. It's not talking about what it would cost to ransom our king. It's talking about a cost involved that was so costly that only the king could afford to make it a reality. Only the king could ransom those who needed a rescue. In fact, for centuries, followers of Jesus have have looked at this verse that Roger finished with, Mark 10, 45, as the mission statement of Jesus. Think about that. This is the mission statement of Jesus straight from his own lips when he says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what we want to talk about today is that idea of our king's ransom. And so we need to talk first about well, what does this mean? What is it? What is a ransom? But the second thing is, how did he do it? How did he ransom us? And then the third thing that we'll land the plane on is why did he ransom us? What did it accomplish? What does it change? Mark 10:45, remember, for even the Son of Man he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' mission statement. A ransom. What is it? What, what, what does it mean that he ransomed us? If we're thinking, so that's the first thing, here's where we start. If we're thinking in our 21st century context and culture, we think of a ransom as, as someone who's been kidnapped and the price that's being held over the kidnapper or, or the kidnappee by the kidnapper demanding that for me to release them, you need to pay me. Now, in a first century culture, this looked a little different. The word ransom was primarily used to describe the price to be paid for a prisoner of war to be released. You see, slaves were massive in number, historians tell us, during the Roman Empire. And many people were were maybe put into slavery because of their own debts, because of their own decisions. They they would serve a period of time as someone's servant or slave to get themselves out of debt. But for most people, the way that they became a slave was that they had been out in a battlefield and their side, their team, lost the battle and their life was spared, but their rights were taken from them. And they were forced into slavery and service. In the future, if they had children and offspring, those children would be born into slavery. But most of the slaves in the first century, think of even the way that the Roman Empire was built, It was because of conquest and war. These were prisoners of war. In fact, in other Greek writings from the first century, this word ransom that's used here always is used in referring to a price that was paid to buy back the freedom of a prisoner of war who served as a slave. A slave experienced the moment that they were taken off a battlefield, their life was spared. What they, what they experienced in that moment, though, although their life was spared, they, they experienced a civil death where they no longer had either a legal or a human right remaining on their side at all. There was, however, a way for them to be released, and that was for someone else to come and to pay the ransom price for them to gain back their identity and freedom. And for us in this moment, where it says that Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many, it tells us that you and I were expensive. That the king's ransom was not what it would cost to free a king. No, it was what was given by our king, a wealth and a fortune that only he had at his disposal in order to rescue us, in order to save us. Okay, now this is so, so very important in our talk this morning, in our discussion, so please don't miss this. I think this is so powerful, not just to hear, but really to understand. And that's this: that a ransom provided means that both a ransom being provided means both that a price has been paid and that a status is changed. If a ransom is provided, if that's what it's saying Jesus did for us, it's telling us that a price was paid by Jesus, but it's saying that there's a change in status for me for the ransom for the slave who's been liberated, that there's a change in identity in me. It's not just that he paid the price to free me, it's that my whole identity is shifted and forever changed. Yes, the price was massive. His very life becomes the substitute for my own. But the change in status is equally as impressive if you really think about it. Because a slave is made a son. Because an outsider is brought in and made an insider. Because an enemy is made an heir. The change in identity is that I'm forgiven, I'm washed. It's not just paid for where I don't, I don't have to worry about the judgment of God, the justice of God. It's that I've been rescued, redeemed, and united with the Heavenly Father. It means personally that whatever your identity is in your own mind that you don't want others to see you as, but the truth is you see yourself this way, maybe even because of past mistakes in your life, that that identity is changed if you've been ransomed. If someone is ransomed, it doesn't just mean that their price was paid on the slave block, but it also means that forevermore they're never again known as a slave. They're a free man. They're welcomed back into a home as a son or a brother or a father or a mother. There's a change, a radical change in identity where their rights and freedoms are something they experience again. I'm no longer just a slave. You're no longer just a failure. You're no longer marked. Your identity is no longer shaped by a failed marriage or relationship or business. Or a pregnancy that didn't come in the moment that it should have. Or an unfaithful relationship that was a part of your story. Your identity is no longer shaped by any of those things. There's not just the truth here that something was paid for you. But there's a truth and reality that needs to sink into each of us. That there was something that also transformed in us when Jesus did this for us, when we chose by faith to embrace him and to let him rescue us. And that's that there is a change in identity. A slave is made a son. An outsider is made an insider. An enemy is made an heir. That's the gospel. You know, the prophet Daniel, he foretold that God had this promised deliverer, the Messiah, who would come. And Daniel would say he'd come as the son of man which is what Jesus says here, for even the Son of Man. It's a reference to Daniel saying that God would come, God's Messiah, his Savior would come. And Daniel said he'd come with heaven's ultimate authority, with his power, with the power of heaven in his hands. But Jesus is here saying that the one who comes with heaven's authority doesn't come to wield that power, to push other people into suppression before it, like Daniel had prophesied. Instead, the one who comes with heaven's authority does what Isaiah the prophet had said. Isaiah emerged on the scene and he leaves a very different prophetic image of what it would look like when God's Messiah, his Savior, would come. He told us that he would first come as a suffering servant. The one with the authority of heaven coming, setting that authority and power aside to do what Jesus has said here not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. In fact, according to Isaiah 53, where Isaiah talks about this in great detail, in verse 10, Isaiah 53 verse 10, he makes it clear that this was God's plan and desire that it pleased the Lord to make Christ suffer because his suffering became an offering for sin. He ransomed us. Literally, he paid a price to secure our freedom We're talking about this idea, what Jesus says here is mission statement that I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Well, what is it? What's a ransom? A ransom being provided, it means both that the price has been paid on our behalf, but it also means that the status, our identity has been changed because of that. But how? That's the second thing. But how? How did he do it? How did he ransom us? And that's something Jesus himself answers. And if you've been with us for long as we've walked through Mark, and I realize we've taken a slow journey through it, but you've realized there's two themes unfolding that we've been emphasizing. The first is that as the story begins, it's Jesus progressively, patiently revealing his identity. It's the guys initially going, wow, who has this kind of authority in the way that he teaches? But it's not just that, that, that all of a sudden catches their eye. It's then people saying, and who is it who could possibly have the power to drive out those demons? And who is it that has the authority to make the lame to walk and the blind to see and the crippled to be restored? And who can forgive sins but God? Who can walk on water? Who can speak to the storm and have it obey? Who can feed the masses with just a boy's lunch? Who can raise the dead back to life? The theme of the first half of Mark's gospel is Jesus progressively, patiently revealing his identity. And it hits its pinnacle moment in chapter 8, verse 27, where Jesus looks at his friends and says, well, not just who do men say that I am, but who do you say that I am? You remember Peter responds and says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. The first half, the theme of Jesus progressively revealing his identity, wraps up in that statement. The Christ, the son of the living God, the second theme instantly is introduced by Jesus. Where it's Jesus clearly declaring his purpose. Because Jesus immediately responds to him. And if you have your Bible open, you can even look at it. Chapter 8. Verse 31, where it says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and after three days he would rise again. Jesus, the second theme of the book, is Jesus clearly declaring his purpose, not patiently revealing his identity, gently, but instantly, as soon as they knew who he was, he says, and here's why I've come. I've come because I must suffer. You see, the theme of the first half of this book was that the king has arrived. But the second half theme of the book is that he's not the king that they were expecting. And he would not take the throne the way that they had hoped. In fact, when the guys approach him in this moment and say, can't one of us sit on your right and one on your left when you go into glory? That moment for Jesus would be on a cross where it's already been selected, he said, by someone else who will be on my right and my left. And we remember he's crucified between two thieves. Skip ahead in the book to Mark chapter 9, where now Jesus' second time, he declares his purpose in verse 31, where it says that he taught his disciples and said to them, the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. And after he's killed, he'll rise again the third day. But they did not understand this saying and they were afraid to ask him. Now a third time, Mark chapter 10, he's declaring his purpose Look at verse 33 again, where he says, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. In this passage, Jesus tells us both how and why. Both the how and why. He's clearly telling us both how and why he'll suffer. The how is given greater detail than any other time Jesus has previously told his friends about his suffering because now he tells them that both the Jews and the Gentiles will be involved, gentlemen. They're going to reject me. I'm going to be condemned to death. It's a legal term that's used, legal verbiage, that indicates that he will be tried and executed within the criminal justice system. He's not going to be taken off into the shadows and and murdered in a back alley. No, he's saying the whole system is going to turn on me. And then he says, and when they do, they will mock me, spit on me, scourge me, and ultimately they will kill me publicly. But he never mentions the cross without a resurrection and says that he would rise again. That's the how. Now the why, he answers that by telling his friends that he came to be their ransom. Remember, because that's been their question, hasn't it? That's why they were afraid to ask is, why in the world, Jesus, would you say that you must suffer? In fact, Peter had stood up and said, not a chance. And then Jesus gave him the new nickname and, and called him Satan in that moment. But now they know why. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Think about Jesus' statement in Mark ten forty five. It clearly teaches us about his choice to leave heaven and come to earth. His mission statement teaches us some things. And if you're a note taker, just write these things down. It's telling us that his coming was necessary. That apart from God, we don't have access and favor to him. Uh, apart from God's intervention on our behalf, we're separated from him. We needed a ransom. His coming was necessary. But it also tells you his coming was personal. Personal. God did not send an agent, an aide, or an angel. He himself came. It was necessary. It was personal. But he's also telling you that his coming was purposeful. It wasn't accidental. Here what he tells them is that his life is not taken. He says instead it's given as a ransom. He says it's neither an accident nor a tragedy, not a mistake at all. It's a gift. He's saying it's necessary. My coming, it's personal. My coming, it's purposeful, not an accident. And his coming was selfless. Every other king or ruler rises to power and is served by others, but not Jesus. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But he also tells you a fifth thing, and that's that his coming was substitutionary. What he gave was not for his own freedom. It was a ransom for those who needed a rescue. In fact, in that little comment where he says, and it was a ransom for many, the word for is the Greek word anti. It means instead of, or in place of, or as a substitute for many. He came and his coming was necessary. It was personal. It was purposeful. It was selfless. It was as a substitute. How did he do it? Why? Take a deep breath and just listen to what scripture tells us. Scripture makes it clear to us who will ransom us. When your Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, who desires, God desires of all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. Scripture makes it clear who will ransom us, but scripture makes it clear what in the end ransomed us. Again, just listen. Peter writes, First Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, From your aimless conduct, you receive by tradition from your fathers, but you are redeemed, you are ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The who, the what. Even, it's a slightly more complex one to answer, but even think of how Scripture makes it clear who the ransom is paid to, who receives the ransom payment. Romans chapter five, verse nine says, much more than having now been justified by Christ's blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Romans chapter three, it says it this way, justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So who was the ransom even paid to? Do you remember that turning point in Mark's gospel where Jesus says, I'm going to suffer? And Peter stands up and says, not a chance. And then because he's standing in between Jesus and the cross in that moment, Jesus refers to it as a satanic moment. He refers to him as Satan because Satan was in opposition of the cross. It's not Satan whom Jesus is ransoming us from. In fact, Ephesians chapter five, verse two, it says, instructing us, it tells us walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Satan was robbed at the cross, not enriched. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says it this way, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. It was to appease the wrath of God, to destroy the the corruption, the works of our enemy in the world. Satan was robbed at the cross, not enriched by a ransom payment. It's what Colossians records to us that I've told you before. In chapter 2, verse 15, that where it talks about at the cross, Jesus disarmed principalities and powers and made a public spectacle out of them. To disarm means to spoil their plan. And the idea of making a public spectacle out of them was the the verbiage is a, a quotation of what was referred to as the Roman triumph. Where if you lived in a colony of Rome far from Rome and you had enemies coming saying, they're not going to protect you and we're going to come and kill you. And if you don't come and join our side, you're going to die. And then Rome's armies would come and attack those individuals who had threatened their people. And once they conquered them, beat them, they would lead a triumphant march back through that territory saying, these are the people you once feared. And they'd strip the leaders of the enemy's army naked and drag them behind their horses and say, these are the ones who once hurled their their worthless threats, who had a lot of bark and no bite because Rome would stand with you and for you. That's what the cross did to our enemies. He was robbed at the cross, not enriched. Jesus said, the son of man, he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Our king's ransom. What is it? What's a ransom? Well, it's... The ransom being provided, it means both, that a price was paid for me, but it means that there's a change of identity that takes place inside of me because of what Jesus did for me. How did he do it? How did he ransom us? By exchanging our life for his. He suffered under the wrath of God for us. The question of why he ransomed us is the important one. What did it accomplish for us? And this is where we'll wrap up, is talking about this idea when you think about it, for, for Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, to be a God of justice, it wouldn't have surprised anyone. It doesn't surprise any of us. Deities all throughout the ages are always depicted as demanding justice, demanding it at any and all costs, because we realize if we have a God that exists, He has to be just and make things right. And Yahweh, the God of Israel, He's no different until, here's what's different, until he proved that his love was equally as powerful as his demand for justice. And he would prove that when he would demand justice at any and all cost to himself. He himself would be the object, become the object of his divine wrath and judgment, so that we could be the object, become the object and recipient of his amazing unmerited love and favor. What was the shock is that Jesus would be treated as an enemy so that you and I could be received as sons and daughters. The shock is that the divine God of justice would suffer for us so that we could become the children of a loving heavenly father. Why did he ransom us? What did it accomplish? Well, he ransomed us from slavery to sin and Satan. He ransomed us from slavery to sin and Satan. Jesus ransoms us, scripture is very clear, from the wrath of God, which means that we don't have to fear his condemnation if we trust in Jesus as our salvation, our hope, our ransom. And in doing so, in ransoming us from God's wrath, our Savior Jesus also rescues us from the bondage we were under to sin and Satan himself. That means that we're no longer enslaved to the broken patterns of sin that was our default setting that was reset in that change of identity that happens when we put our faith and trust in Jesus. Jesus' own words, rather than a reset of the default setting, what he said is you will be born again. That's how he would describe it. Think of it this way. I don't know if you're familiar with C.S. Lewis' legendary uh, series of books, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But I was thinking this week about the story of when Aslan, he's the Jesus-like figure, the lion in the story, where Aslan takes the place of another character in the story. He takes the place of Edmund upon the stone table. You might remember the story. The stone table was this place where justice would be served. And because Edmund had broken the law, transgressed it, now justice and judgment needed to fall on his head. But instead, Aslan will take his place, freely doing that, and give his own life. Think of it. And when he does, the stone table, when he breathes his last, it breaks. Think of the imagery. The stone tablets that come down in Moses' hands from atop the mountain. The law that scriptures say that no flesh is justified by the keeping of the law, that the law was given to expose us to the dark reality of our deep need for a savior. A mirror just, it exists like a mirror, scripture says, and a mirror shows me my flaws so that I can try to do something about them. But some of my flaws can't be remedied. And that's what the law shows me is that I'm so deeply broken Remember, Jesus says, you say you haven't committed adultery, but did you lust in your heart? You say you haven't murdered, but have you hated someone without a cause? I start to see that I'm so deeply broken and have transgressed every aspect of the wall. I'm breaking under the weight of it until Jesus comes and breaks the power of the law over me, saying, because I took your place and suffered the judgment that you deserve, this terrifying reality of you being sacrificed under the weight and power of the law is no more no one else would die at the stone table because Aslan takes his place. But a second thing happens simultaneously in his book that's beautiful. The reign of the evil witch begins to be undone. The eternal winter, the, the grim reality of her reign over the land all of a sudden shifts when he takes his place and the stone table is broken. Remember that spring begins to arrive. In fact, I love how Lewis writes it. Here's what he says. This is Aslan speaking. He says, if the witch knew the true meaning of sacrifice, she might have interpreted the deep magic differently, that when a willing victim who has committed no treachery is killed in a traitor's steed, the stone table will crack and even death itself would turn backwards. Jesus' march towards death was really a march towards life. Not just for me, but for all of creation. Remember the two bookends of the book are the Garden of Eden in the garden we call paradise or heaven at the end of the book. In Eden, everything was good rather than marred like it is today. Every person in each relationship were whole rather than fractured as they are today. And that was because God was enthroned over creation. Fast forward to the end of the book, to the garden we call paradise. It's heaven And in the place we call heaven, everything is good again. Every wrong is made right. All of creation is whole again. And that is because God once again is enthroned over creation. God's grand goal is not just for me to be forgiven. He came to redeem and restore all that was lost. That's me and creation itself. Jesus came to take back his creation and to set up his kingdom here. And the promise of the kingdom is not that everything will be easy today, but it's a promise that everything will be made right tomorrow in our future. God's goal all along was what Numbers 14 had said, that the glory of God would fill the earth. Or in Habakkuk 2, where it says, the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the reality in our future that God wants to restore all of creation for it to once again reflect his greatness and glory. That's mankind and creation itself. But we know in the Garden of Eden, everything went wrong when for the very first time, mankind reached up and grabbed hold of the authority that was God's alone. They grabbed hold of the right to define good from evil. And ever since that day, mankind's we continue to self-destruct as we continually are determined to self-define what is right and what is wrong. And since the moment we rebelled, this world's been led by and subject to Satan's kingdom, a kingdom of sickness and decay and death. But you remember Mark chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus goes out preaching the gospel that the kingdom was at hand. A new king, a new sheriff was in town. And his kingdom would look so very different from decay and sickness and death gospel, he says, I've come to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. Gospel is not just a churchy word. It's actually an ancient word that emerged out of political circles. It was exclusively used in referencing the announcement about a king or a kingdom. When he says, my gospel is about the kingdom of God, everyone understood he's talking about a change, a shift in power, a shift in the one who's in authority that Jesus is saying Everything inside the kingdom is going to change because you have a new king who's arrived. Okay, now get nerdy with me for a minute here. For Jesus, the gospel and the message of the kingdom were not two separate things. They were one inseparable message. Consider not just what he says in Mark chapter one, where he says, I've come preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, but think about his teaching. His teaching was almost exclusively about the kingdom. Think about his parables. They're almost exclusively referred to as parables of the kingdom. Think even of Jesus' miracles. They give us a glimpse into the kingdom. They're not meant to be read just as a challenge to our minds. They're meant to be read as a promise to our hearts that the world that you and I want is coming, where people are whole and well and fed and united again where every tear is wiped away, where every wrong is made right. And some would argue and say, well, no, those are two separate uh, opposing themes. The gospel of the kingdom is separate from the gospel of Jesus and his grace. But I would argue that that the gospel is the good announcement about the global kingdom of God expanding and arriving and about personal salvation that's made available uh, available to us by grace through faith in Jesus. It's not one or the other a kingdom message or personnel salvation, it's both. It's both. The message and promise of the kingdom of God and a door into that kingdom made for us, made possible for us by Jesus, our ransom. Think of it this way. The kingdom of God is like an umbrella or maybe like the roof on top of a house, the house of God, the kingdom of God. And the gospel of grace is one facet of that massive overarching theme of what God will do all throughout creation. It's like a doorway that allows entrance into the reality and experience of the kingdom by embracing a relationship with heaven's king. I think it's important because I think sometimes we sell the gospel of Jesus short when all it becomes is good news of my personal forgiveness in Jesus, that I can feel confident that God's not mad at me anymore, that I got my eternal fire insurance policy from Jesus and from what he did on the cross, but he did more than that. Because Jesus' plan and goal was bigger than that. The gospel of the kingdom is, yes, about my personal redemption, but it's about global restoration, that that's what Jesus is doing. It remind you that the storyline of the book is not about us going to heaven when we die. The storyline of the book is all about heaven coming back to earth here. Creation being restored and man and God being reunited again. Why did he ransom us? What did it accomplish? Well, he ransomed us from slavery to sin and to Satan and his reign. He didn't just make a way for me to be forgiven because he loved me so greatly that he's willing to ransom for me that he made a way for me to be saved from that tyranny. Okay, real quick, a second thing. Why did he ransom us? To ransom us from slavery, even to societal structures. Okay, that sounds really lame, but I couldn't think of a better way to say it. But that's what Jesus talks about here, isn't it? He tells them, this is how it works in the world. You know how it works in the world. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their, their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall become a servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. He's ransoming us from the societal structures that exist. He's ransoming us, rescuing us from the way that things work in our broken world. Where every king, every other king and global leader rises to power with an iron fist in order for them to be served. But not Jesus. With the exception of Jesus, that's true. Every other founder of a spiritual movement or religion, they live their life as an example and place that weight and burden on you, but not Jesus. He dies instead as a ransom. You see, ever since humanity first enthroned self in place of God, our world has been subject to a broken set of principles. Think about this. And yes, throughout the ages, the players have changed but the rules are the same. If you want to be great in our broken kingdom, in the kingdom of this age, in the world's value system, as we discussed last week, Jesus warns it's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing because of the self-deception that's connected to it, where you want the world to, to deem you as successful, and when they do, it can be so difficult for you to see your own brokenness and deep need for God, but the world, it's built upon some sort of a broken system, a hierarchy of principles. This is how greatness is defined. It's defined by power. It's defined by comfort, by success and superiority, by respect and admiration. If you want to be great, Jesus could have said, go pursue those things, but he said the opposite. In our world, that's how the kingdom principles work and look, though, because those pay off. Those things work in our world, so, so it makes it seem absolutely natural for us to live that way, pursuing power to push it over the heads of people around us, to so lord over them, as Jesus says. And let's be honest, if the now is the only thing that exists, then it makes sense to live this way. But these things will disintegrate, not just in heaven. But even in our future here on earth, these things don't give lasting satisfaction. Your beauty, if that's what defines you and and you feel is empowering to you, is disintegrating. You'll not always be the most beautiful person in a room, and great will be your brokenness in the day that that happens. Your achievements, if that's what defines you and gives you empowerment, someone else's name will end up on that desk or plaque inevitably your influence or people's admiration of you, their attention will be drawn elsewhere or one day you or they will move to a new area and the process will start all over again because it's an unending process of trying to be empowered by other people. In this system that exists in our worlds, who would value service or weakness or selflessness? To live that way is occupational suicide. It means you step off the ladder that you're trying to use to go up in order to achieve some sort of power and influence. It's a death to my need for admiration if I leave this way, live this way. It's going to keep me from reaching the top and from finally being able to kick back. But it's what Jesus is asking me. And this is why theologians refer to Jesus and his kingdom as the upside down kingdom. Because it's the exact opposite of the broken system that exists in our world that isn't functioning well. The broken system in our world that just compounds brokenness. In Jesus' kingdom, the upside-down kingdom, there's a reversal of values. And if you're truly a follower of Jesus and a member of that upside-down kingdom, then we'll value and cherish cherish self-sacrifice over self-absorption. We'll cherish and value meekness and humility over success and superiority. We'll cherish and value mercy and peace, vulnerability and love over reputation and admiration because we cherish Jesus over ourselves. We do not reside in the upside-down kingdom of Jesus simply by choosing a a system of values. We reside in his upside-down kingdom when we choose to value and cherish a person, Jesus, who ransomed us. We get a little Dr. Seuss when we realize that Jesus said his kingdom is now here and yet still coming. That we live in this tension of the kingdom of God being here and us entering into that experience, but us still waiting for it arriving in its totality in a future age to come. But God is presently in the process of setting up his kingdom. And if I am a member of his invisible kingdom, a colony of heaven living here on the earth, then I become the means of other people experiencing kingdom life and what it's like to be loved by the king. If heaven's king is alive in me, then I'm not only a member of the kingdom, but I am the world's means of them experiencing what it's like to be loved by the king. The world's meant to get a taste of of the kingdom of God through their interaction with heaven's king who resides in me. We, we become their glimpse of what heaven's kingdom will be like in the way that we treat them that's so different and upside down and backwards from the broken system they live in that just compounds even their own brokenness. Oh, why did he ransom us? He did it to, to free us from the slavery to sin and Satan, to free us from slavery to these societal structures that are just so broken to say you can live a different way. But he also did it so that we could respond to his gracious love, so that we could respond as a servant by choice, a slave by choice, a bond servant. You can close your Bible because we are done. Jesus did not come like any other emerging king or ruler. They'd come to struggle and fight, to break onto the scene and into power with brute force, but Jesus would do the opposite. His cross would be his enthronement. As he arrived, he'd lay down every bit of his power, of his glory, of his dignity, of his influence, of his might. He took on simple human flesh. As Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, Paul said it this way. He said, he made himself, Jesus did, of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross." The amazing thing is that Jesus still sits enthroned today in the lives of hundreds of millions of people across the earth because his enthronement was so different than any other king or ruler in all the ages because his rise to power was the ultimate expression and demonstration of love for his people, that he gave himself as their ransom, as my ransom, and that is why I choose to follow him as king. He did not merely go to a cross. It was his crowning moment as a king. He did not merely go to death, for there was a resurrection on the other side of death. He did not merely find himself betrayed and condemned. No, he gave himself willingly as a ransom instead of many, as a ransom in place of the many. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He's different, set apart from every other founder of a religion or every other leader of a revolution or every other king or ruler or CEO before him or after him. And that their job and goal is to merely leave us an example or to use their authority to lord it over us. But Jesus instead set all of that aside in order to come to suffer and be a sacrifice and savior for us. Jesus is viewed by so many as a failed revolutionary because of the cross. But Jesus' revolution was kick-started in that moment at the cross. For so many, though, I think Jesus, in a sense, still remains on trial. Where they still are yet to decide, in the courtroom of their own mind and life and heart, who is this man? And what does he deserve? We don't follow Jesus as some guru. He's not just a coach. He's not a help. We yield to him as Lord and master. In his epistles, Paul would write these different churches and he'd refer to himself as the bondservant of Christ. A bondservant was a weird cultural thing that existed in that era. where if you were a servant who had earned their freedom, maybe even someone else paid your ransom. If you loved your master and saw the integrity in their heart and you knew that me serving you means a freedom from the responsibility to provide for myself, because that's your responsibility, because me serving you means that I found purpose, that I'm safe here and loved that I'm protected and provided for, then they could go to their master and say, I've chosen though a free man to remain your servant, your slave forever. And they would take them to the doorpost of the, the home and they would place a large spike against their ear and they would nail their ear to the door, leaving them forever marked as someone who believed that their master was worth serving even after their ransom had been paid. It's this beautiful picture that Paul says. And this is who I am. My ransom was paid, but I went to Jesus and said, What I gain in serving you and forfeiting my rights is I gain the character of a good father who loves me, will provide for me, will protect me. I gain your provision, your care, your purpose, your love. What I lose in comparison to what I gain, I'll leave it all in Jesus. I'll boldly say I've been ransomed so that I can choose to be your slave. I've been ransomed and rescued so that I can choose to forever be your servant. Paul would say it this way, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you that you'd give your bodies to God because of all that he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think, then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Jesus, thank you that you became our ransom. Jesus, you're worthy then of us and our lives and our service. Jesus, our fitting response is to respond with open hands to you and say, then Jesus, take my life, nail my ear to the door. May I be a marked man or woman who's choosing forever Jesus to follow you, not as a coach or a guru, but as a master and king and Lord. Jesus, you're worthy of that. Thank you that you paid the king's ransom, that you gave so very much for us. Jesus, may that change not just us owing a debt that we couldn't pay, but may it also change our very identity and the way we view ourselves, no longer as slaves, but as sons, no longer as a far-off, as estranged, as an outsider, but an insider. Jesus, may those realities sink deep into our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.